Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar, Wealth Managers Need to Disrupt Themselves. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion today, sponsored by Trade and Invest Wales in partnership with Fintech Wales. Now, wealth management is a venerable industry, a long history and a forgivably conservative approach to change. After all, wealth managers are looking after other people's money. But they're now facing a series of tests set partly by regulation, but mainly by generational change, technology and competition, and especially the forms of competition that the combination of technology and generational change sets in motion. I was interested to read in the BG Global Wealth Report, the wealth management industry of today is sharing a profits pool of exactly the same size as it had before the great financial crisis way back in 2007, despite a tripling in the value of global wealth in the interim. So clearly something very interesting is going on in the wealth management industry. To help us find out what it is, I'm joined by four individuals who approach this question with four very distinctive approaches Sarah Williams Gardner is CEO at Fintech Wales, the voice of Fintech in Wales, which has in the two years since it was set up helped a variety of disruptive new entrants, digitizing incumbents and tech providers to launch and grow. Andrew Russell is the CEO at Wealthify, a digital investment management service backed by Aviva, whose purpose is to inspire anyone to build their future wealth and aims to do this by offering a simple, straightforward and low cost way for people to invest. Professor Armin Ishragi is Professor of Finance and Investment at Cardiff University, where he has specialized in studying the costs of asset management and taken a close interest in the application of data science to asset and wealth management. Gareth Lewis is co-founder and CEO at Delio, a financial technology firm that enables wealth managers, banks, and other institutions to digitally connect their clients with private market investment opportunities. In addition to our panelists, we also, of course, have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, so do please send them, keep sending them throughout the webinar using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. We will not be saving them up to the end, but we'll address any questions which come up as we go along, so you can be an integral part of this conversation right from the beginning. And we're going to be disappointed if you don't take that opportunity. But I'd like to kick our discussion off uh, with the point that I made a minute or two ago, three times the volume of wealth, but the same value of profits. Is wealth management less healthy than it ought to be? This is an industry which used to rely on an aging population, a growing economy, generous tax incentives to save money, and of course, last but not least, rising stock market performance. Andrew, perhaps I could come to you first. Uh, is the wealth management industry failing to respond to a changing macro reality in the financial markets. Uh, I I don't I don't think so. Uh, I mean, quite a few of the things that you've just uh, articulated there are still uh, present. There's some changes clearly, um, but I think the uh, onset of robo um, advice, for example, the robo advice market that followed the financial crisis, is showing that uh, the wealth management market is adapting to the to the new changes um, uh, that are coming. There are new uh, customer. Uh, demographics that are being attracted to the market um, as technology providers like ourselves um, are, are attracting them to. Uh, we're seeing a big shift from um, from savers to investors and that's that's kind of one of one of the ways that we're um, looking to serve our customers is, is to try and attract as many savers to investors as we can to help people build their future wealth. 
um, and we're seeing that that market uh, grow quite considerably. Mm -hmm. What about my narrow point though, there about this this BCG fact that that there's been this massive inflation in the value of investments, but somehow the wealth management industry hasn't been uh, capitalizing on that. You, you know, you've just made an investment in a, in, a, in a wealth management business, so you must see an opportunity somewhere inside it. What's the, what's, what's the thinking behind what you're doing as opposed to what's happening in the market as a whole? Yeah, I mean, um, Aviva's rationale for purchasing Wealthify, um, I think we're probably threefold. The first is the, is the economics of the deal. Um, buying a, a small startup and, and seeing it, supporting it growing value and, and seeing that investment growing value. Um, there's also kind of planning for the future as well. There was a very clear um, drive and growth in the robo-advised market or digital investment um, management uh, market. Uh, and it's attracting newer, different customers um, uh, from the more traditional uh, wealth managers. Uh, and then thirdly is learnings in both directions, both from Aviva uh, into Wealthify as, as we mature, but also then Wealthify back into Aviva on uh, on, on, on agility uh, and, and technology. Um, the, the products, the wealth management products in Aviva are still uh, generating um, profits and, and, and growing um, and Wealthify is still uh, growing uh, quite considerably. So I, I think it's probably more a, a wider topic for discussion around if the profits are staying the same, but the assets under administration or assets available to investor growing, then there's probably a shift from um, the, the larger margin product um, uh, into the into the um, narrower margin products. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll come back to that because if margins are getting squeezed, we need to think about about costs. But before we do that, Sarah, perhaps you could give us a, a few thoughts on what you think is happening, particularly on my point about uh, generational change. I know this is something which you've seen in your own experience with with Starling Bank. Um, is this new generation of customers more difficult, less profitable to deal with, or just different? I, well, I don't think they're. I don't think they're more difficult to deal with. They might be more demanding, uh, and quite rightly so. But I think it's really interesting just to pick up on the point that Andrew made very well. Turning savers into investors is the way that people are actually going to get some return on their money at the moment. There are, you know, the interest rates are so low, uh, mm -hmm. but we need to. We we also need to to democratize this world of investment we need to ensure that it is seen as um approachable by the, the let's say the next generation you talked about aging population in in investment and certainly when we when we see what's happened with legislation and we see what's happened in the disruption that's happened in the market uh, that we're all very familiar with that we refer to as the fintech disruptors we're democratizing access to more products for more people. And I think this, this has to be a very good thing. So no, I don't think they're difficult, I, but I think they are more demanding and we'll come on later to the types of investments in which they like to participate. But I think what's been interesting is, and I can say this from the challenger market pers uh, perspective is rather than the banks wanting to be all things to their customer, they are actually, taking a different approach, which is to partner with organizations. And, you know, we had the, we had the benefit and the, um, and the good pleasure to actually partner with Wealthify. And so therefore what it is doing, it is opening up markets, giving easier access through new technology, through well-designed interfaces, through 
very clearly communicated products to encourage more people to enter into the market. So, no, I don't think they're difficult, but I think it's a really positive thing to make available more of these newer, easier um, ways of investing for more people, given that we're just not getting any return on savings. In fact, I think there's most probably some stats that tell you if you leave your money in the current account, you're actually losing money. Sometimes formally, of course, depending which currency you're in, they actually give you a negative rate of interest. But um, it's an, an important point that about how, how you turn traditional deposit savers into, into investors. And it raises the question of whether the mass affluence segment, you know, in the wealth management, we tend to divide it up into very rich people, ultra high net worth, and then high net worth, and then affluent, and then mass affluent, how we can make mass affluent investors a profitable proposition. You're dealing with a lot of people with relatively small amounts of money. And I'm sure Gareth will have something to say about, about how you keep those costs down, as it must be largely a cost play. Partnerships also a very important thing to talk about. But before we go on to those, perhaps I'd like to bring, um, it'd be a good, good opportunity to bring Armin into the, into the discussion at this point. Um, to kick us off really on the on, on keeping costs under control because I know Armin you've done a lot of work on um, costs in asset management and I'm wondering how well or what sort of steps you think wealth managers could be taking to keep their the cost of asset management under control. Right so um, thank you for that very insightful question. There is um, there has been a lot of pressure as you correctly mentioned on uh, on wealth managers and fund managers in general. And the elephant in the room is of course, passive strategies, passive investors, and so on. Um, so the active passive debate, I think is still raging on. Um, in the academic cir circles, we are still writing and publishing papers on uh, the skill versus luck debate and how to, um, how to, uh, uh, distinguish uh, real investment skill uh, on behalf of the active investors. So there is there is that rational argument, rational debate, which is still going on. But there's also the, I think, in my view, the, there's also the need for human touch, which the passive platforms and passive investors do not provide. Um, and uh, personally, I think the direction to go, I think the, most of the growth will happen in hybrid platforms where there is scalability afforded by fintech, where um, um, there is an engine for investment advice um, backed up by algorithms, backed up by, by recommendation softwares. But there's also the human touch uh, uh, through distance communication technologies where, where somebody is doing the handholding um, in difficult times. And I think this also, goes back to Sarah's point about fairness uh, and uh, democratization. Um, so uh, uh, there has been a lot of pressure, um, according to academic studies, on, uh, on, on as far as cost is concerned on active investors. And part of, it, part of this comes from passive. Part of this comes also from uh, new uh, innovations in the, in the uh, wealth management space, including, of course, digital wealth management and robot voice. Gareth, yeah. one of the points which Armin made before we lost him was that in wealth management, you have this dilemma. You've got to retain the human touch, um, but you've also got to keep your, your costs under control. Um, mm -hmm. To what extent can technology enable you to excel at relationship management and client service uh, without losing that, that human touch? A machine is not the same thing as a, as a human being, but 
talk us through it. How, how can it be done? Yeah, absolutely. I think just kind of pulling pulling together thoughts from, from both of those questions. I think, you know, we, we do have this new generation of wealth creators that are fast emerging. And, and I think arguably more financially savvy than, than previously because information is more accessible. I think lots of young people now view themselves as investors, entrepreneurs, philanthropists in, in some way, shape or form, right? So I think adapt that trend is happening and people are actively engaged and want to do more, more with their money in in a certain lens. So you've kind of, they're, they're, they're in their wider lives, obviously more tech savvy and more engaged. So they're able to adapt and engage with new technologies quickly, easily and effectively. But at the same time, you know, you go back to the historic, the history around wealth management, private banking and, and, and the like. And I think you've got a, a desirable objective and target for, for many of these wealth creators, you know, having a, a wealth manager or being part of a private bank is, is, is exclusive and, and, and desirable for a, a number of lenses. So that's where the, and, and with that, inevitably, you're going to want the human touch as well. So whilst I think the, the technology component is, is, is hugely important, Arjun's point was absolutely right around that that um, omni-channel approach being most effective. Now, there's going to be one side, which I think is going to be more expensive than the other, which is going to be the personal touch. But I think if you can get if you can get that process of adopting technology for digitization, process automation, and focusing on, I guess, eliminating lots of the processes that, that do take up a lot of time, that should, in theory, allow you to focus on that arguably less profitable outcome, but also more rewarding and engaging. So in the long term, perhaps more profitable, depending on how you cut it. Um, so I think it's about, yeah, for me, it's about automating, digitizing those areas which can be digitized. And then that allows wealth managers, private bankers, or whoever to spend more time on building those client relationships, increasing touch points, potentially delivering new service service lines and creating new monetization opportunities. If I just add to what Gareth said, sorry, uh, Amon, do you want to follow up on your earlier? No, no, point? no, please, please, please go ahead. No, I was just, just going to um, uh, agree with Gareth. Even in the uh, kind of robot advice space where you, you may think the majority of it is automated and digitized, the majority of our customers still want that human um, uh, customer care center, the operation center to ring up because we're dealing with people's money here. Um, they want to know that it's a real thing. Uh, they're happy to digitally interact, but they want to know that someone's at the end of the uh, call, at the end of the phone in case anything goes wrong. Um, and I think in in all in all that spectrum of, of wealth management, whether you kind of standardized um, uh, and digitized up to personalized touch, you need to get the right balance between automation, digitization, and personal touch for where you are on that spectrum. Yeah, um, I did you want to finish what you were what you were saying, Armand, when we lost you? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, when we were talking about technology, and then technology fails, of course. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> So the, the, the relationship between human, humans and technology is really fascinating because, of course, you, uh, uh, th there is interesting research which shows uh, when, you, uh, when an algorithm fails, uh, as, a, as a human consumer of the algorithm, as a client, you blame the closest human involved. <laughs> uh, so uh, so not, not the algorithm. So the algorithm is never culpable. It's the coder. It's the person behind. So interestingly, we both need trust. We need yeah. trust uh, humans, but also we need to we need we need humans to blame. You can never blame the software or the algorithm. And uh, so I completely agree. It's ultimately about the balance. And I, I don't think without the human touch, you can provide the full scale service, um, um, especially especially for higher segments of the wealth management market, such as high net worth and ultra high net worth. 
um, uh, clients. You, you do need that, but um, across the whole sector. And also I would say, especially in turbulent times, because when the markets are jittery, you really need that handholding. Um, uh, you also need to pacify clients about fear of missing out. So they hear things about, you know, oh, am I, am I in crypto? Am I sufficiently in crypto or not? And again, again, I, I believe the algorithm would not be able to provide that level of, um, uh, of, of assurance, uh, human touch again. Well, we're going to come back to crypto. Um, so <laughs> you want to say something? I, I have a question for, for Andrew, which I wanted to pick up from something you said earlier, but you wanted to say something, I think. Uh, well, I, all I was going to add to was, was Armand's point, and he, he eloquently started to move on to trust. And I think you know, in this, in this post-financial crisis, disruptive fintech new, new entrance to the market, a lot of this is about building trust, uh, the banks and financial providers in the larger market, maybe not the high net worth or the ultra high net worth where there was uh, that client relationship to, to assure and take the client through those turbulent times. But I think when we talk about the larger markets, this point on trust can't be underestimated. It's, it's highly significant. Thank you, Sarah. So, Andrew, I'd like to pick up the point Sarah made earlier about making servicing mass affluent investors, if I can call them that, commercially viable. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the, uh, and add to it something which Gareth said, which actually this isn't a binary choice between being you know, digital or being human. You have to be all of these things. It's got to be omnichannel, as, as he put it. Uh, and you yourself are saying that people still want somebody at the end of the, the telephone. And Armin was saying, you know, people don't trust the... <coughs> The machine they trust the humans are. so um how do you how do you create a successful and profitable business for mass affluent investors here you are you've got all these people saving in bank deposits losing money in real terms yeah. uh, it's a massive market for you but how can you make it pay if you've got to be omnichannel um i mean we, we talked about that scale uh, uh, earlier yeah. on of where people the the, the the kind of math mass affluent are the kind of smaller pot sizes that um people uh, have to invest that are still a hell of a lot of money uh, to them. I know, I know um, uh, two, one, two, three thousand pounds may not seem lots of uh, money to, uh, to to the wealthy, but it's, it means a lot of money. It certainly means a lot to me and it means a lot to a lot of people in the UK. So previously, I think they have uh, people with that size pot size have struggled to access uh, investments, um, despite the fact that uh, investments have um, over a longer period, which is when they should be invested for, have outperformed all savings rates, um, but savers have uh, of that size have historically not benefited from the increments that an investment product would give them. Um, I think the the onset of technology is ultimately the answer there. We are built um, on uh, technological platforms that allow uh, customers to 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 come into our our platform in an accessible, um, easy, and affordable way. You can invest with us from from as little as one pound. Um, and uh, we, we make that business uh, profitable. We're growing that business um, uh, materially because uh, it is giving access to investments for a new cohort of people. Uh, you need to get that balance right. As, as we've said, we, people who are dipping their toe in investments for the first time will be the people who on the acquisition journey just want to ring up and, and check that what that they're doing the right thing or that, it's land, that the money's landing in the right place or just want to query something around what investments is, what, what they're investing in. Um, so it is vital to have that human contact. 
Um, and we have humans investing as well. The, 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 the robo element is, is maybe a little bit misnamed in the market. It's around rebalancing the portfolio rather than, rather than stock selection. Um, but all that technology has been used to bring the cost down um, to, to a level that allows mass affluent customers to access investments and to bring as many savers to investments uh, to, to become investors uh, as possible. Uh, before I let you go, we've had a, a question here, which is, um, and it, it prompts a, a second thought in my mind, which I think is quite important. It's do women invest in a different way from men and are wealth managers developing services aimed at women? And the thought I had earlier is that one of the things Gareth mentioned was that uh, young people have a more entrepreneurial mindset. They see themselves as entrepreneurs are engaging in this economy for a variety of motivations, but they certainly are comfortable with business as a, a culturally comfortable with it. Do you, in terms of trying to develop products and services, um, categorize people by these sort of identities as, as women, as entrepreneurs, as professionals, as, I don't know, people own a lot of land or, or anything else. Is, it, is, it, is that kind of work possible? And does it, make, does it make sense as a provider of wealth management services to think of people in those sort of categories? I, I think um, labeling and treating women differently from men is not necessarily the right way to look at it, but there are definitely customer behaviors uh, of certain demographics that will look for different things. Like some people may be more um, digitally native than others, whether they are male or female. Um, um, they, they may be more uh, open to investing in, um, in, a, in, in an investment product that has a digital journey um, than some, some other people. It's the same with age as well. We, we have, a, between Aviva and Wealthify, we have a range of ages. Um, I, I've got some people, um, a, a good slug of my customers in, are in retirement and some of the Aviva customers have a good slug of their customers at the younger age. I, I think it's around how people interact with investments and how, how uh, what people's propensities are to, to, to engage with certain things and, and, and uh, kind of how they're built up. Um, rather than um, labels of uh, um, gender, uh, age, um, affluence levels, you, you can, can kind of get a, a population-based data-driven insight into where the most likely th um, um, optimization point is for certain categories, uh, and all that all, all that's uh, kind of readily available uh, for, from uh, kind of the data miners and data scientists in the industry. There's lots of people ready to sell you uh, information on. The general public um, and how they generally behave um, as a cohort, um, uh, but that, that's probably more around targeting um, rather than categorization. Uh -huh. Yeah, sorry, it was it was an unnecessarily clumsy question. I can see that it needs to be more granular than, than I was than I was implying. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about about how you actually innovate in this in this space. And perhaps um, Gareth, you'd be um, a good person to start us off in this area. I, for example, was offered the other day the opportunity to become an investor in a company which, whose intent is to gamify investing. In other words, using, you know, cartoon characters and making it more like a, a computer game in which, you know, you can, you can actually play the game and, and, and get some extra interest in your account or get some dividends or, or whatever. So what does, what does innovation in, this, in, in wealth management actually look like? Is it, is it about the, the customer experience? in the way I've just described, i.e. the service? Is it, about the, is it about the products you develop? Is it about um, the processes that you do? How do you innovate in wealth management? Do you have to innovate at multiple levels? Yeah, I mean, I think I look at it quite, um, you know, from a pragmatic component perspective in terms of where the industry's 
you know, at more broadly. And I think in terms of digital adoption historically, probably hasn't been the, the fastest moving as we, as we discussed earlier. I mean, a lot, it's, um, you know, I think more broadly across the industry, I think there's so much of this world ran off Excel's emails, PowerPoint and, and, and pen and paper. So when I kind of see these, what I kind of refer to as technology for technology's sake, when people are doing this and that in this world and, and, and kind of maybe 30 steps ahead of, of everyone, I kind of look at it a little bit um, in, in, in the lens of being, is that, is, that really where, is that really where the industry is right at this moment in time? So from my perspective, I think innovation in the industry is, is, is adding value. So it's, it's, if, you're, if we're a B2B uh, white label service, so we're selling to banks and, and, and the three main things we, we sell by, and I think these are the three key elements from my perspective in, in wealth management innovation for the time being is about you know, increasing revenue opportunities, um, improving operational efficiency and reducing risk and compliance overhead. And I think they're the three key challenges that any technology innovation needs to really be tackling to be relevant in the industry. If you're not doing one, if you're not actually solving any of those problems, then I think your, your mission to be a player in the industry in some way, shape or form is going to be pretty difficult. Now, I'm not saying those technologies that are emerging and coming over the landscape are completely useless or not valuable. There's obviously a lot of value to be had from um, from the power of, of data analytics and insight, there's going to be a lot of value to come from digital asset tokenization and, and some of the technologies that, under, that underpin things like cryptocurrencies. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think wealth innovation and wealth management is is you know I think I think it's keep it keep it simple in, in in a lot of senses, and I think that's what what's going to drive value in the industry because you can't you can't really run before you can walk, can you? I think Dominic, if I just just pick up on that, I think the um all of the points that, that Gareth uh, is making are really valid points. I think the, the, the challenge here is when you are going to a mass market for investors and you're looking to increase your consumers. And we all know that uh, a B2C offering and marketing and getting to those consumers is, is a very difficult thing to do. And therefore, where we are seeing people gamifying um, some of their products it, it's it's in that early stage of where they're trying to get people to engage um, to start thinking about these things uh, and, it, and it might not be the way the product ends up being but delivering but it does create the conversation and it does create interest in the market and and it and it can appeal to some of the some of the newer investors um, in the way that when we talk about innovation, we talk about uh, very simple things like rounding up in your bank account. You know, if you if you buy a coffee and you put the roundup, be it 30 pence, 20 pence every single time into into an investment, which with the new providers, you can do that. You know, you can. I mean, Andrew alluded to Wealthify. The entry level is a pound. Um, and the moment you start investing, you start getting compound interest, you start getting benefit from these things. So to start getting people into the market, there may be some of these uh, gamification approaches, but the, but the market will, will, will innovate in many different ways. Um, the, the efficiency of delivery to, to the things that Gareth is alluding to is absolutely imperative. But I think in order to get that mass market, sometimes you might see innovation in ways that we, we might not have thought about. Um, you know, we're seeing people introduce uh, the, the sort of a, a, almost like a reverse marketing where if you do say yes to having your data shared, 
you're getting value back from that these days, um, rather than the people who own your data um, actually uh, marketing to you or selling your data. So I think you know, there's a lot of things changing in the marketplace, but gamification uh, is, um, is possibly a way that people are just getting, encouraging the conversation. Uh, there will always, in my personal mind, there will always be the, uh, the space for humans for that reassurance and trust. Now, Andrew, I'd, I'd like you to think about some of the things which, which Gareth said, which is about the, the regulatory burden and the lack of investment by the industry in technology. But before you answer those, I'd, I'd like to bring Armin into the conversation um, about innovation, really. Um, and Armin, you, you, you talked earlier about passive investments as being a serious competitor for, for wealth management firms. Um, you, you began to touch upon, upon technology. I'm wondering to what extent um, fintechs are becoming um, a serious competitor for established wealth managers. I'm also wondering to what extent you think the likes of the fangs, you know, the, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, how, are they limbering up off stage somewhere to enter this market uh, and deliver the scale which which Sarah and Andrew have have, have talked about very quickly? Um, right. So uh, this goes back to the uh, very interesting question on big tech versus big finance, and I believe um, big tech has. Uh, indeed, a lot of muscle power to enter into finance. However, um, it's it's probably certain areas of finance where they might encroach on sooner, and they have already, such as digital payments, etc. When it comes to wealth management, um, um, while it might be likely that the fangs might enter that, uh, my my feeling is that probably that is uh, we're still not there yet in that respect. I, I don't, I think it's too technical. I think it requires a, um, uh, a deep, uh, a deep understanding of how, uh, you know, investments are made and it's, it's just uh, another ball game. Um, so I, I, I think that's relatively unlikely in that respect. Um, there are information privacy considerations and uh, there are a lot of consumers who think, well, a company like Google already knows so much about me. I'd rather keep my finances to myself at the very least. Um, and um, so there's that. Um, I, however, um, uh, we have, we have in the wealth management space, we've seen two types of, I guess, competition. So one, um, there's one group, which is the startups, like the, you know, better men's and wealth fronts of the world, uh, which, which initially were private startups and they've grown very well. Uh, but we, we're also seeing uh, fintechs, uh, and robo-advisors, for example, associated with the big finance players like the Black Rocks and Vanguards and so on. So I think there are two, two different breeds of uh, uh, wealth advisors who are competing together. And I think that battlefront would be very interesting to watch. Regarding innovation, um, uh, I, I just thought of two interesting examples. Um, obviously, the tech itself is 24 seven, it never sleeps, right? That if when you have a digital uh, wealth management platform, it never sleeps, it never gets tired, unlike a human advisor. Um, and I think that's where the innovation is happening. So um, these platforms are, are constantly monitoring and rebalancing your portfolio, or in theory, they can do so. And uh, for example, um, as you know, um, this is from financial psychology. We're all loss averse. We all hate losing money more than we enjoy winning, 
when you have the same amount. So this is well documented. And because of this, when you have a portfolio as a human, you're likely, when some of your stocks go up, you're likely to sell them. But when some other stocks go down, you're likely to keep the losers and not sell them. Because when you sell the losers, the losing stocks, you realize a loss, which is psychologically very painful, right? So, okay, so uh, the tech platform can give you alerts, can, uh, can provide stop losses into your, uh, into your uh, investment routine and so on uh, in, a, in, a very, in a very systemic way that a human advisor probably cannot. Um, so that's interesting. And also the last thing I wanna say, you mentioned uh, gamification. There is an interesting study that shows um, when you show investors um, their future self. So let's say you take a young person's image and make it old and show them that, for example, uh, you know, in 30 years time, they might reach pension age and this is how they might look. Then they relate to their future self uh, much more closely, and then they start thinking very seriously about saving for their, for their, uh, for, for, for their retirement, which is very interesting. So there are ways in which platforms can nudge you to think about the future, about saving, about investing, uh, in, uh, which, which, which is, again, tech-enabled, and we didn't have that 10 years ago. I think some, uh, maybe Aviva is running a, an advertising campaign based on exactly that. For a young man that seems to be narrowed to see his older self. Who is that? Like, is it you, uh, Andrew? Yeah, I think we've got that at the moment. Um, there's, there's lots of apps available in the market as well. My daughter at the moment is, is, is nagging me to get an app where you kind of just go on a little scroll bar and it, and it changes your face as you go. So there are, there, there's lots of that about in the market. Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad it wasn't around when I was younger. <laughs> i horrified to see my present self. Um, I, I asked you a minute ago, Andrew, to think about, um, about one of the things that, that Gareth raised about compliance cost, compliance risk, lack of investment in technology, because we talked a lot about innovation here. Um, and one of the things Armand said is that what somebody puts off the fangs from investing in this area, of course, is the fact you have to be very heavily regulated. Uh, so regulation and compliance is a real burden. And there's not a total technological solution to that, but how is it, is it reached the sort of unaffordable stage now, unless you are a certain size? Um, I don't think so. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen lots of the new entrants uh, come in the market. I, I completely agree with Gareth. Um, I think uh, we, we are we are investing people's hard-earned money here. This is their their life savings in, in uh, generally what we're talking about. So we, we need to make sure that there are appropriate um, policies and controls and processes around the industry to make sure that we're protecting people's money. You know, it's, it's vitally important that we get that right. So I'm, I'm in favor of regulation. Um, I think the two things that we could improve are on proportionality and consistency. Um, so for example, me as a, as a small startup with, diff, uh, with, with kind of quite um, small level of regulations, um, to try and keep it simple, uh, has to hold a similar kind of uh, uh, proportionate quantity of capital as a, big, as a, as a, as a bigger player and that has uh, more uh, that takes on more regulatory risk. There's certain permissions that they hold will hold a, a wider array of permissions that, that create more capital requirement. Um, and so, look, looking at that proportionality and, and, and making sure that the, the, the regulator is applying that um, 
uh, throughout the industry is, is, is important. And then the second piece is on, on consistency as well. You know, we, uh, to, to, en to, to enter into a robo-advisor, you know, if you put money in Wealthify, you have to go through a suitability assessment. That's a, it's, a, it's a 15 question long um, set of questions that checks that um, your appetite for risk is set at the right level that you've told us, which is, which is vital to make sure that we're not putting people's money to work in the wrong places, that we're, we're, we're investing at the right level for your um, kind of risk of loss, volatility and time horizons. So that, that's really important. Um, I, I think we could improve on that as an industry, but people, you know, we get lots of our customers getting annoyed at having to answer 15 questions to be able to put their money with us when they can go and put their money in game shop um, and, uh, you know, maybe temporarily rise, uh, but then gain. They, they can self-select uh, without the same rigor um, as you do on, um, on robo-advice uh, and similar with, with full-fat advice. So I think proportion i'm a big fan of regulation we need to get it right in the right areas and, and for me you do that by proportionality and, and most importantly consistency Can I, i'm interested you raised that point about customers being irritated by the the checks you have to run under the regulations can i ask you something very specific about that when you onboard a client yeah. you, do, you do have to go through this very tedious process of checking they're not money launderers or or yeah drug dealers or what are the AML, the KYC, the sanction screening, the anti-terrorist financing and all that stuff. Um, to what extent do you see a combination of technology and data as being able to make that process more efficient? Are you experimenting in that area, not just within Wealthify, but maybe within Aviva as a whole? Uh, not, not just Wealthify or Aviva, but the entire market. I think we, we come back to kind of partnerships again. Um, well, I'll refer back to your earlier question, why Aviva purchased Wealthify. One of, the, one of the reasons was because we can do what we do at Wealthify better than Aviva could do it, just because of the kind of culture and makeup. And it's similar with um, KYC and a a a AML as well. Um, you know, we, we will build what we can where it's most efficient for us to build it. But if there's other people who are specialized in it and are connected to better places and data that can supply us that data at a cheaper level than we can build it, then we should be exploring partnerships, whether it be me, Aviva, or other people in the industry. And we're certainly seeing that. We've seen a lot. We've seen a lot of improvements to get there. Um, I think the, the the onset of open banking uh, in, uh, in the last couple of years, particularly in the last twelve months, have helped that a hell of a lot. But it's slow, um, and I think that's probably been one of the most frustrating parts of this. Is that you know, had we opened up open banking a lot quicker, we'd be in a lot further place with, uh, than than we are now, um, and we'd be able to do things like. Uh, AML, um, money laundering, um, even suitability, even beyond there, you know, provided customers are willing to, uh, for, for us to access some of their wider data to make that uh, onboarding uh, um, uh, process easier, it could become a lot simpler if, if we were a bit further along on the open banking route, which we are, which we are uh, moving along and we'll, we will get there, but we could do it quicker as an in industry. Now, I, I know that Aviva is involved in the, in the ties of the, the Tax Incentivized Savings Association which changed its name, the, the Investment and Savings Alliance, I think it's now called, are running this project on, uh, on digital identities. And, and I know Aviva is, is involved in, in that. You've seen the governments now taking steps to, to make it possible to, to lay down a framework, a template, if you like, for, for determining digital identities. Um, is that something you see as, as a huge cost saver in that onboarding process? Not just as a cost saver, but also maybe something which makes the the customer experience more positive because they can say, well, this is who I am. 
uh, you know who I am already, and it's updated continuously. Is that is that an area of live discussion for you? Yeah, I mean, it is again, well, everything is balanced, isn't it? We'll come back to that word balance. So th there are some customers who um, would prefer to answer those questions throughout than uh, than uh, give people access to their full set of data, mm -hmm. and there's other um, uh, customers uh, who are maybe more uh, time poor. Um, that are more willing to share data to have a, a, an easier, quicker life through um, different onboarding situations. Um, uh, and, and I think uh, exploring both and getting that right balance and giving people options. I think that's another thing that technology gives. It, it gives people options. You should have the choice to be able to say, no, I, I don't want to use my data for that. I want to use it for this. Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to, to, uh, to, to kind of uh, spend um, that 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 data knowledge to make this bit quicker or, or, or easier and cheaper, but but not here. So I think I, I very much encourage uh, that ongoing debate and 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 um, work. Uh, Gareth, one thing I'm hearing very strongly from from everybody is that choice is is important here. Uh, and if you're having to give customers a choice at the front end, the only place you're going to be able to save money, I assume, is in the is in the back office, the the middle office. Um, how do you do that? What can you do? We've talked about partnerships, for example. Maybe there's outsourcing. The answer can't be just just buy better technology. It must be more complex than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think there is there was obviously yeah the the by the idea of, of of buying technology and streamlining all your processes and and, and making making the world a better place. I guess is doesn't necessarily and I think I think that's probably a challenge for a lot of you know new entrants in the fintech space. You come up with a arguably a brilliant idea, it can save time, it can save money, it can save um, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also the minor, the minor challenge of, you know, a lot of these institutions that you're looking to work with and, and, and sell into have 30, 40 years of, of legacy systems that might make that exceptionally difficult. And then that's not, that's just the, the you know, the, the evolution of the world over the last 40 years and not, not by, not by choice clearly. So I think there's, um, there's, for me, it's around kind of having that, you know that wider understanding of, of of why that technology can have value and the approach to it. I think, you, and that's something that you pick up from you know we're trying to work with these financial institutions on the B two B lens. So, so I do think, um, you know, one of the benefits we found over the years is the fact that we were typically, if we are selling to a client with existing alternative investments, private market offering, what we were typically replacing was email, Excel, PowerPoint. Now the benefit to that is that we didn't need to talk to lots of legacy systems. We could arguably test new propositions launch new platforms, launch new propositions for these banks fairly quickly and in quite a light touch way. But as soon as you start infringing on um, those broader frameworks and that broader back office, middle office infrastructure, then you need to really, really know what you're doing and have a, a super compelling use case. And probably go, you probably then need to go back to the front end because really the, the, the main sell for the, the financial institution to be able to engage in that product pro project because it's going to be challenging is going to be generating significant value far above and beyond what's currently there so um so i think i think i think so i think it's kind of um that's probably the first thing i think the second thing is and kind of how we see the fin you know the fintech has space has shifted from that first way of the world which is more kind of what i'd call a disintermediation play into a into a collaboration play and i think the third the third wave that now is not just expecting um you know financial institutions with these challenges to take your product, another product from another another startup, and another product from another startup. But it's how all those systems can be interacting together effectively before being presented as a proposition to the FI. And I think that's probably the the most cost cost effective way and valuable way that you can implement change on a large scale in some of these big organisations that are.
facing the brunt of these challenges. Sarah, um, Gareth is, is describing there a world in which you have a very efficient, or as efficient as you can manage, given your legacy back in the middle office engine, but you still want this engaging front end. And I can see why, because when I first started looking at wealth management 30 years ago, the great thing about it was the clients were so sticky. They always stayed there. They had this close relationship with somebody. Does this new technologies robo advice for want of a better term make it actually make it easier for clients to leave or is it a tool for making it easier for them to stick around i'm not sure i completely know the answer to um to the stickability question um but i think making it easier for them to start uh, and therefore you've got more coming into the market um and it is down to how you serve them. You know, I mean, we, we've talked about the efficiency of, uh, or, or Gareth was alluding to, you know, where, where you are replacing very, um, very simplistic Excel spreadsheets, et cetera. It was, it was an easier market. But I think, you know, what we've got now is we have got, and it's, it's been raised in this call, we have got, uh, you know, we've, got, we've had the, the wave of the Payment Services Directive 2. We've had the opening up of banking data. We've, we've got... Um, open banking, we've got open um, open finance, which is sort of continuing to push the envelope. And I think what, what we've got here is we've got disruptors that are partnering with people who are expert in the market. And I've alluded to challenger banks and partnering with Wealthify in the past and putting the consumer in control of that. You know, we know the regulations, the regulations are there for the right reasons. You have to reconfirm your consent to share your data. You know, it, you know, if I if I have an account with Wealthify through my Starling account, then every ninety days I'm asked to reconfirm that sharing of data. And this 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 is a, a an obligation on on the re respective providers, but it's there to protect the consumers. And I think when you when you start coming into that into that partnership model and that um, API model, and we you know we know that the API is the part that people can move from one place to another because it's it's a standard interface and quite rightly so to allow um, a larger amount of products to be offered. But it's, um, you know, it, it, as I said, the stickability, is, is it not going to be all down to customer services and providing the right products at the right time? And, it, you know, that might be one of the things that takes you on to one of the other questions I know you're going to ask about, which is, you know, where do people want their money invested? Um, and I think at the same time here, you've got to, you will always have to provide the consumer with the ability to invest where the consumer um, ethically wants to invest um, and, and also sort of morally wants to invest. So, it, you know, it, it's down to service at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree with Sarah. It's, it's, uh, the kind of consumer choice is really important here that people will stick around um, if they're enjoying what they're getting uh, the experience they're getting at the price they're getting it um, and uh, people will will come into the market uh, if, if it's accessible uh, and affordable and, and they've got that choice to do that so I think I think stickability will be driven by uh, as, as people get over that inertia either to enter the market or to, to move to, to look around from an existing provider it'll start them to them to challenge themselves on how good a service am I currently getting and how much does it cost to get that service and can I get a similar service for a different cost elsewhere, which is exactly what we should be driving as an industry. In that case, Andrew, there's a good question for you here. Um, I'm a young person, I'm shocked by the fees, so I've started to manage my investments myself using independent tax wrappers and, uh, and, and indexed 
indexed funds. Is, is DIY a, a, a seen by you as a serious competitive threat? And, and is, is the fintech universe supporting people's ability to do that? Um, I, I think there's a spectrum of products uh, depending on what a customer wants to do. And I, I fully kind of support uh, if, if a person has the knowledge uh, and uh, experience and time to self uh, to self invest, then that makes a, a lot of sense, sense to them. And there's lots of digital players in the market that are, um, give those customers access to those markets. Uh, and you can then bring your cost sell, uh, cost down if you do if you do it yourself. Um, uh, lots of people don't have that time, don't have that experience, and don't have that knowledge, or or are worried about doing things themselves. Um, and for that, you have um, more managed solutions like a robo advisor, like Wealthify, that that uh, that will manage that solution uh, for you, so that you get your time back, um, uh, and you can use their knowledge and investment. Uh, knowledge and um, analysis um, to, to, to get a more uh, diversified portfolio across the range of funds. And then you take that a step further, if you want to access an even wider array of funds uh, and, and different um, investment mechanisms, then and you've got larger pot sizes uh, where it's economical for a financial advisor to, um, uh, to look at larger pot sizes, then you've got that end of the spectrum as well. So I, I'm a massive... Um, uh, proponent of having customer choice and having the full product set across those uh, customer choices and DIY plays part of that. And passive, is that a serious competitor to you? Is that the one you worry about the most? Well, we, we use passive funds, so I'm, I'm certainly not worried about it. It's, um, I think it's had some really healthy challenge and discussion in the last few years around um, cost versus uh, risk slash return. Uh, I think, you know, passive has performed uh, really well over the last uh, two or three years. I think it probably outperformed active. It doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. Um, and I think there's a, a market for each one of them. I think, you, you, again, it comes back to the, what do you want from a product and how, and how much are you willing to pay? If you're wanting to stay in certain funds or a selection of funds uh, and it's diversified and you want to grow with the stock markets, then, then passive is the cheapest and best solution. If you want some more um, active choices and management, um, then the active is, is for you. We, we use passive for our original funds and active for our ethical funds. And I think that plays a really good part into the ethical, um, into the ethical pitch um, because you've got someone actively regularly looking at your, your funds and we have people regularly looking at those funds to make sure they're doing what they say on the tin, that they are ethical. And, and so it's, it's a, it, it, the, the both are relevant depending on what the customer wants to choose. Yeah, well, we'll come back to ESG and crypto in a minute, but I'd like to ask Armin this question. If you were advising a wealth manager, would you say get out of active asset management, just just go passive? Oh, not at all. Um, so th this is a really interesting question, and one can talk about it in detail. Um, the uh, can I ask it in a slightly different way? Then would you should you get out of asset management altogether? <laughs> there. Hmm? Um, again, not at all. <laughs> so um, ob obviously, passive has outperformed active in recent uh, well in, in, in recent history let's say but we also I think this is the start of a very exciting journey for active because never in history has act have active in uh, managers had access to such computational power such um, um, uh, advanced machine learning artificial intelligence etc so if you really want to act play the active game I think the tools have never been this strong. And uh, 
And so going forward, I think companies that can tap into some of that type of active investing uh, surely will, will contend for returns with passive investors. Also, um, regarding the question about fees, I think that kind of tunnel vision and myopic emphasis on just fees itself could, could be counterproductive. Um, the, the, the better question is, what are you getting for the fees you're paying? So what is the value added? Because it's really about the value added versus the fee, not just the fee. I mean, this might be a clumsy analogy, but um, you, if, if, if you're choosing between two cars and one's slightly more expensive, uh, it could be that indeed it's the better option to go for the more expensive car because it gives you more mileage and it's less accident prone, et cetera. Um, so I think it's really that. So what are you getting for the fee? Um, so in, in my view, uh, that debate is not settled. I think uh, active still, especially with the, with the tech, with the machine learning, with, with the use of technology, still has lots of things to say for itself. Now, we're heading towards our last five minutes. Time does go very quickly. ESG has now has now been has now been brought up, uh, not um, not just by panelists but also by a questioner. Lots of ESG products are obviously greenwash. I like that obviously, but there doesn't seem to be anyone that can help make us help me make choices. How do wealth managers decide what is and isn't uh, isn't greenwash? And that resonates with me that question because we did a, a webinar earlier this week, in fact, the future of finance, which we we're talking about the paucity of data to enable asset managers um, and investors to decide what was and wasn't a a green product. There's lots of service providers and data vendors out there saying this is, uh, this is a green product, but actually when you when you drill beneath the surface, um, ESG is, is essentially very little difference between funds which is not ESG and the funds which are which are ESG. Um, you, you're, you're, you're nodding, um, Armand, and I'll come back to you in a sec. Perhaps, Gareth, I don't know, you must be dealing with managers who are having to accommodate ESG products um, how well are they doing it in your judgment at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I can look at it from the from the private side, I guess, and and yeah, I mean, one of the you know core trends that we've you know we've we've seen a lot of increasing demand for private markets propositions, and um, hence why we're in business, and and that's being driven by the clients of the banks, and it goes back to these kind of new generation of wealth creators that are wanting hands-on investment opportunities they can know, see, touch, feel, understand, and 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 social impact has been a real big drive on that so we've got a couple of projects with a number of banks Barclays we've, we've co-launched an impact investing um, marketplace called Impact Agora and, and I guess my my observations is that there's lots of talk from investors in terms of investor appetite around wanting access to interesting deals I think um, and 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 you know investment opportunities that bridge together that idea which previously would have been um, investment and philanthropy trying to bring the, the two together so you can do do a bit of both and I think one of the big challenges at the moment has been access to high quality deal flow, which I think is a, an interesting, I guess, a similarity on the public side in terms of access to, you know, accurate ESG information. Um, so there's a couple of challenges, I think, in the industry across the board, just because it's in, it's in its infancy. But I think what we are probably, I'm probably seeing is uh, lots of clients exactly having concerns around, you know, the validity of, of what they're seeing in terms of flow of ESG information. So hence then taking it upon themselves to just invest in, privately in investment opportunities that they are closer to opportunities that they can get access to that are more maybe more have more of a near-term impact to them so maybe something that's affected them in their walk of life or you know or something that that 
they have exposure to in their local community, for example, they're the kind of demand for impact investments that, that we've been seeing. And, and perhaps I wouldn't be qualified enough to say, but perhaps that's because of some of their challenges they're seeing around really understanding whether these more larger traditional investments are truly are truly ethical. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I was going to uh, see if Armand wanted to jump in there, but I, I wouldn't mind uh, following up on that if that's okay. I completely agree with Gareth around um, the access of, of information on ESG is is really important, and I think we should we should see that in, uh, improve as we go. Um, I, one of the uh, just to respond directly to the to the question, uh, mm-hmm. the, the choice you currently have in the market is around number of exclusions. Really, that's what it boils down to. Some people exclude a couple of things. Uh, I think we're one of the stricter exclusions in the market, uh, where it's weapons, uh, adult entertainment, uh, gambling and tobacco. If you go one step further and, and do fossil fuels, you're moving from ethical into sustainable. I think there's only one fund that does that in the market. The reason why the right hand side of that is so limited is because of the number of funds in the market that you kind of can start with enough funds to have a diversified portfolio at the left. And the more that you exclude, your investment funds, go, uh, number of investment funds you can invest into go down, which means the diversification risk, redu- uh, diversification uh, ability reduces. So actually, the, one of the biggest things we need to see is, is an increase in the number of um, uh, underlying funds, uh, actively managed underlying, uh, ES, underlying ESG funds in the market that give people the ability to, to diversify ESG-based funds in the market. And then we can start seeing a lot more um, optionality in products. Now, we're going to have to stop in a couple of minutes. So I'd like to put this futuristic looking question. Now, Armin, you mentioned, you brought up the question of cryptocurrencies. Uh, quite a lot of wealth managers I talk to are coming under pressure from high net worth clients in particular to invest in Bitcoin, Ether, and so on. And then there is the even longer term possibility for wealth management, which lies in, in tokenization, the tokenization of securities, starting with private market assets like private equity, private debt, uh, illiquid asset classes like, like fine art, collectibles, real estate, uh, uh, and so on. Um, is this... Um, is this the greatest opportunity ever for wealth managers or is it just an incredibly complex uh, area which they should probably stay well away from um, until it's better understood and more liquid? Um, Well, I I don't think it's the greatest opportunity ever, but it's definitely something to be aware of. I think there are opportunities in terms of investment diversification. Um, These are increasingly being treated as alternative assets. Obviously, some of them are very volatile, um, but with the advent of, for example, stable coins and gov coins and central bank digital currencies, et cetera, in the crypto space, my, my anticipation is that we will see more stability in certain cryptos and certain coins. But you correctly mentioned um, other alternative assets being tokenized and therefore being able to be um, invested in collectively. And I think that is that, w- that would be a fascinating space to watch. At the same time, there's also elements of overhype in this, in this landscape. So uh, I, I think the, the difficult thing is uh, to be able to understand what goes on, uh, but also not getting sucked in the hype. And, uh, uh, yeah, but at, I, I do believe that if, if active managers completely stay away from this, they will miss out on some of the opportunities in the coming years. 
Um, NFT is another one, for example. Um, what will happen to NFTs in terms of as an, as an asset class? Is this an asset class? Uh, is this comparable, for example, to some of the other things that's happening? Still very early days, jury's out. But I, I think we have to just rationally and calmly look at this market and see how it progresses and, and assess it independently. Thanks, Alan. Uh, Gareth, are, are clients pressing you saying, I've got, to, I've got to get into crypto and NFT and security tokens or not? Um, interested in the, I think inter interested in the concept around digital assets and tokenizations. We, we, we don't, we occasionally get quite a lot of website inbound leads around people who are building the, the revolutionary crypto that's going to solve all problems and we should partner with them. I get a fair share of them, but I don't have many of the, the larger clients today. I think, as I said, a lot of the core challenges we've been seeing is how we can solve you know, that engage in using technology and, and getting technology to the advantage. But I do see a big caveat in that by saying I do see a big opportunity in, in tokenization around digital assets. And I think, again, it's about for us, it's about getting those workflows automated, getting the processes effective, getting, getting, getting our clients truly engaging their clients with a great private market proposition. And then we can look at how we can, you know, start moving into those kind of worlds. But there's a couple of things we're working on in the pipeline. So. Uh -huh. I asked that. I was interested to ask you that because I thought private markets would be a you know, ripe area for, for, for tokenization. So, I think it is, yeah. Um, and do you, do you think there's education to be done with the clients in that, in that area? How well understood is the whole concept of tokenization and crypto and NFTs? Um, I mean, I think, I think, I think uh, from my side, I think there's, yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a hell of a lot of information online in terms of, 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 of views, and I guess some at different ends of the spectrum in, in, in reality, I think. Um, there's definitely an education piece across the board, I think, on, on, on private markets and, and private assets. I think there's a bit of a, um, a gap in terms of people realising it's how straightforward these, these, these investment opportunities can actually quite be with once you have that understanding of the market. So I think the education piece is, is across the industry and, and but I, th I think that will only come by getting some stability in those industries to be able to build a solid foundation and base from. Sarah, last word from you, perhaps. Obviously, the way people buy banking services, financial services, insurance in general is, is changing. Could it be that the way they invest in corporate assets should switch from conventional equities and bonds to becoming tokenized? I think you're right. I think I think lots of things are changing. You know, we are seeing. I mean, the big question is: in is it going to be five? Is it going to be ten years' time? Will people own cars? Will they, you know, will they be uh, on a subscription model such that they need a four by four today and a soft top tomorrow for whatever purpose um, they they want that vehicle to move them from one place to another? I think there's lots of I think there's lots of things changing, and I think also when we look at the the ethical um, element of this you know we're seeing new entrants in the market uh, who are actually helping individuals to understand their spending in their bank accounts let alone where they're investing so I think back to the point the biggest thing for me on this is being mindful of the change and the way people's behaviors are changing and, and their needs are changing um, and it's about education it's about education of the potential for tokenization but it's also about the education of the value of getting into investing versus savings, because quite frankly, at the moment, very few people are making a lot of money by, by keeping money in, um, in pretty poor savings um, options or, or in current accounts. So 
it, it's education and just being mindful that the world is changing and humans and, and our behavior and our needs are changing and we've got to adapt. Thank you, Sarah. Andrew, perhaps you could have the last word of all and, and, and wave us out of our very interesting discussion this afternoon. Are you at Wealthify um, thinking seriously about cryptocurrency and, and digital assets as we call them or security tokens or, or NFTs? Are these kind of on the radar or are they active projects at the moment? Uh, well, they're definitely on the radar because it's it's a, a live asset and our customers are interested in them. They ask us regularly about them. So we need to serve the market appropriately. Um, at the moment, uh, cryptocurrency uh, and, and kind of token-based assets are um, quite volatile and they're more in the speculation space for me rather than investment space. It, it's people making investment decisions to make a short term, short term turn on them. Uh, and at Wealthify, we're after long-term investments. So they're not in our investment portfolio yet. Uh, if they start settling down and becoming less volatile, um, then they could be in the future, but they're not at the moment. Good. Well, I hope you'll come back and talk about uh, this when we're a little bit further down the road and the market has matured because it's a very interesting future prospect for us. But I think uh, we've run five minutes over and I've been enjoying it rather too much. I'm sorry for that. Uh, but we better stop there and thank our panellists, Sarah Williams-Gardner from Fintech Wales, uh, Andrew Russell from Wealthify, uh, Professor Eshragi from Cardiff University and Gareth Lewis from Delio. With that, it's goodbye from the five of us. And thank you also to the audience, of course, I mustn't forget you. Thank you. <laughs>